don't try to do it alone. Start putting together your personal board of advisors and individuals and friends. What can you learn from them? How can you create the space to learn from each other? Welcome to the Genius Women Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisiu, a published travel photographer and writer, an entrepreneur, and founder of Genius Women. Four years ago, I quit my corporate job to pursue my dreams. And today, I'm on a mission to help other women pursue their creative dreams as well. This is Genius Women, a podcast where we explore living a rich, meaningful, beautiful creative life through in-depth conversations with brave women pursuing their wildest dreams. If you're ready to put your fears and doubts to the side, go after your dreams and step into your brilliance, you're in the right place. Let's go. So we just heard a few words of wisdom from our guest, Catalina Mayorga, a 2019 How I Built This Fellow, an entrepreneur and founder of the award-winning El Camino Travel that recently launched their innovative clubhouse community. A quick conversation about drug cartels with a taxi driver in Guatemala dramatically changed the course of Catalina's life and veered her from international development to hospitality and tourism. Kata is a community builder, organizer, entrepreneur, and someone who stands up fiercely for what she believes in. In this episode, we talk at length about empathy and about being able to walk in another's shoes. Kata's story shows us, and I love that part, that it's okay to ask for help and to lean in on your friends and supporters. We're not supposed to do this all alone, and we need to hear this reminder every single day. I'm so excited to welcome Kata to our show, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. But before we jump into it, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. The Genius Women podcast is available on all major podcasting outlets, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. It helps us so, so much to get the word out about the show. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please do me a favor and listen to this episode in its entirety. And promise me that at the end, if it was valuable to you, you'll go on your phone or on your computer and leave us a five-star rating and review right then and there while the excitement is fresh. Thank you so, so much. All right, let's jump into it. Katza, it's so good to have you on our show. I'm uh, so excited to hear your incredible story. And yeah, let's, let's get into this. So I want to start where I always start with our interviews, which is, tell me, what were you uh, dreaming about as a kid? Ooh, what was I dreaming about? I think lots of different things. So I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and which is in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And my parents are from Colombia. They are, so I'm first generation Colombian American. And, um, when I think back on my childhood, I definitely had an eclectic childhood, which at the time maybe I was, well, I didn't appreciate 
I, I wasn't embarrassed by it by any means, but I definitely didn't appreciate how much exposure my parents gave me to my Colombian roots and heritage. I remember at several weekends, like we were always, when they got to Washington State, which there isn't much diversity and there's definitely not a Latinx, very large Latinx population there, but somehow my parents found all the other Colombians in uh, Washington State and they really formed this incredible community um, of Colombian friends and family. My dad first immigrated, he's the oldest of five kids. He immigrated first to the United States. And then my three aunts and my uncle followed after him. My grandparents came over in the 80s. And we just, on the weekends, we were at, always at someone's house, having a barbecue, salsa music playing, the adults drinking fire water, Arguadiente, which is Colombian's fire water, a guitar out. I There was just never any denial of who we were and our culture, which I think is somewhat rare. And um, especially in the 80s, being a child of immigrants I've, and talking to other friends. And so that was always so deeply rooted in me and the traditions around my Colombian heritage. Um, so <laughs> sometimes it was horrible because, you know, Seven in the morning, my dad would blast salsa music throughout the house. And basically, that <laughs> no was our wake-up call to get up and start helping out and start doing our chores. Um, and, you know, while other – my friends um, from school, their parents were blasting, you know, Eric Clapton and the Eagles. In our house, it was Celia Cruz and Grupo Nietzsche from Cali, Colombia, where my mom's from. So uh, – yeah, it was it was an eclectic, eclectic childhood. And I think I don't know if I was dreaming about that. I don't know if that's uh, I was always just um, I felt so strongly tied to that since mm. a young age. Did you have maybe uh, I'm curious, uh, because what, what you just described, the whole experience speaks to me so strongly as an immigrant who has also grown up in not, not in a place where you know, the roots of the family are from. Did you ever have that dichotomy in your experience of basically living in a co Colombian household and then going to school and being in America? And, and how did that, how, how did you f feel about that experience? So I didn't have the experience where I tried to like hide my culture. I think I've always was pretty proud of it. I think there was just, I had an interesting experience where my little sister, who's only 18 months younger than me, there's four four girls in our family. So I have two older sisters who are 10 and 13 years older than me. And then it's me, my little sister, and we're only 18 months apart. So I'm, even though I'm a middle child, I'm kind of like the oldest child because my <laughs> sisters quickly went to college when, you know, I was like six years old. So, mm -hmm. um, but my little sister, who I'm still very protective of to this day and, and very close with, um, had a speech impediment where we were speaking Spanish in our household and um, and English because my older sisters were in high school and she couldn't distinguish between the two of them. So we really had to switch to English in our household. And with that, mm -hmm. I lost a lot of my Spanish pretty early on. And it wasn't until high school where I'd start taking Spanish classes that I became 
familiar with the language. I understood everything because my parents always spoke to us in Spanish, but I always responded in English. Um, and somewhat was because of my sister and, and really having to make that switch in our household. Some of it was also because, you know, I didn't have many people to speak Spanish with other than my parents and going to school. Um, it wasn't cool back then, you know, to know multiple languages. Now, you know, parents are trying to teach their kids four languages. Uh, right. So I think that was um, that maybe a little bit, but I, I think where I started kind of thinking about it more deeply was, um, well, I mean, to step back, yes, in a way, um, not a dichotomy, but seeing and experiencing racism at a very young age. Uh, I have, you know, an experience where my dad and I were at Fred Meyers, which is like Safeway, QFC, um, grocery store in Washington state. And my dad has a very thick Colombian accent and we were checking out and the register, the cashier, I was eight years old and the cashier lady yelled at my dad to that in our country we speak English even though he was speaking English and I just remember my stomach dropping and feeling so angry and such rage and I grabbed my dad's hand and I was like my dad's been in this country for over 20 years he speaks English perfectly well we don't need these groceries and dragged him out of the grocery store and my dad saying to me that, you know, Miha, don't worry. This is, this happens, this happens. And just don't worry about it. Don't let it get to you. Move on. But just knowing deep down inside, there was something so wrong with what just happened. And having a, another similar experience in Florida, where my dad asked a clarifying question so that we were renting snorkeling gear. And the guys basically turned to me, I'm, my dad's darker skin looks what whatever you want to say is stereotypical um, Latin man where I'm uh, lighter skin look passes white in our um, in the United States of America and he turned to me and said you know clearly this man doesn't understand what I'm saying so can you translate for him and mm. just again I was like now a teenager, so a little bit more unruly and snapped back and was just really, really upset. But having those experience, I think, not and not fully understanding what had happened and, and what the race dynamics in our country and how deeply rooted they are, definitely left some sort of imprint in me. And that really impacted what I studied in college, what I ended up doing after I graduated from college and where I am now. So just having those experiences, I think, little life experiences and seeing that those are some of the, along with the, um, the salsa music blasting at seven in the morning, which <laughs> I smile about now, those had as much, that had as much impact to me, those put that push and pull of what it means to be Colombian American first generation in our country. For sure, for sure. And I, I think that's kind of along the lines of what you said, it also, in a way, puts you into the path in which you're walking today, right? All of those experience, those lived experiences that you had almost guaranteed that this is the path 
um, that you will be walking today, which we will get into as well. But also knowing you, I would say that what I also heard from you is that from a very young age, you were fierce. You were fiercely protective also of those you love. And having traveled with Kata and, and, and knowing her as a friend, I can say that this is really who she is. I'm, I'm not surprised at hearing those, those stories of yours. But so then what happened next? Did you go, did you go to college in, in Washington or did you stay there or did you move somewhere else? Yeah. Oh, just to back up a little bit what you said, you know, I think being fierce is it's just being vocal, really vocal, you know, mm. because I, going back to my little sister, so for a long time, people couldn't understand her. So I was her interpreter where she would whisper to me and I would have to stand, you know, interpret to the rest of the world. Okay, this is what she wants. This is like, I was one of the few people that really understood kind of this gibber, I don't want to put it down by any means, but her special language, you know, and so, um, and when kids made fun of her, oh, I was there protecting her at her side, and then that experience with my, my father. And so um, I think I feel while it was hard in the moment, and, you know, something that really um, impacted me emotionally, it's also as you said, it's what taught me to be pretty vocal at an early age. So I think now, and this goes back to, to everything, my adulthood now and being pretty vocal now is just, I didn't have any, I didn't fear um, speaking up. That's, if anything, right now I'm learning what I've learned, you know, in the past few years that is the importance of listening and stepping up and that you don't always have to speak up right away. Take your time be thoughtful. There are moments where you should definitely, but there are plenty of moments where it's less about being reactionary and more about just being curious and asking questions and being thoughtful. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like finding that balance of balancing those two sides, right? Exactly. Especially with social media now, it's so easy to repost and go off and, and say something. And I think it's actually harder what I find harder for myself is to not get swept up in it all and really ask questions read and then formulate an opinion or then formulate my thoughts and so that's something I'm actually personally working on right now so yes that sounds like a very thoughtful way to to process everything that's going on right now in the country and in the world it's Mm -hmm. incredible I do want to return to this uh, topic of speaking up yeah. uh, a little bit later when we talk about El Camino, but let's let's paint a picture for our listeners. So what happened? How did you get there? So <laughs> went to college, was got a full ride, luckily to school and was really lucky. So ended up getting part of, I was part of this program where I could I went to University of Washington in Seattle and um, had a program where I could go to start school about six weeks early, six or you know eight weeks early, I can't remember, I think like a month early and take a course and do like a really intensive course for four weeks to help me prepare for college and get ready for this you know new big world. And I thought I was going to go to college 
study business because you're going to work hard, you're going to make money, you got to be successful, you've got to achieve, quote unquote, the American dream. Like I was, my parents immigrated here, they were poor, I'm the next generation, I got to really make it. So that's my way of doing that was business. That sounds so familiar to me. Gosh, I think that's every single immigrant's story. It sounds so familiar. Totally. Like, yeah. So that was, that was it. And so I saw this as an opportunity to be like, okay, well, before it gets really hard and before I have to really study and work hard, let me take a class that sounds interesting. That sounds different. And I, there was, you know, I think like 50 classes or something and I chose human rights in Latin America. And yeah, of all the classes, that's the one I decided to choose. Again, I think everything happens for a reason. And that class was led by a woman, a professor, a young professor who she's probably, she was younger than me. I'm 35. I think she was 34 or even maybe 32. Angelina Godoy, who ended up becoming my mentor throughout all of college. And just, it was the history that no one teaches you in high school. It's when you're studying world history, the world of coups and revolutions and dictators in Latin America, backed by the U.S. government in Nicaragua, Chile, the Civil War in Colombia. I just started to learn all these things that my parents hadn't talked about, that I had never learned in my just eyes. She's a fascinating professor. She's She helps you. I, I feel so fortunate she was my first professor because she really instilled critical thinking and debate and dialogue. And just knew after that class, no way am I taking business 101. And I don't know what I just learned, but I want to learn more of that. And that really set the path and ended up going into international studies and doing with a focus on human rights. And just did it, studied abroad, went to India, went to Costa Rica, went to Guatemala with Angelina, where just that we were studying a month long and we went to mining communities. But she, what was so amazing about her is not only, she would always make us see both sides. So before we even went to this community that was being impacted by a large mining corporation, Canadian mining corporation, she actually had us meet with the PR person that was living in Guatemala from Canada, from this big Canada Canadian company to hear about all the great things and how this is going to help the community and how this is, they're going to put a playground in there and blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and then we went to the mining community and heard and religion is really tied to human rights in Latin America. So we learned about liberation theology through Catholicism and met with a priest who was the leader, an Italian priest of just really fighting back. And so um, these, this is, you know, I'm 19 years old at this point, and this is the experiences. This is what's forming my education and what was not only did she have see us do see have us see both sides, she really was an example for us about like take what you believe in and put it into action and do something. And so after that Guatemala experience, we had gone to a coffee farm that there was an economic crash, and the owner of the coffee farm, uh, you know, very rich person basically deserted all his workers and hadn't didn't pay him for years of work. And there was a huge legal case. And we actually met with the 24 families that were in a legal case with the owner of the farm. And this was all being 
supported by the I grew up and just to side note, I grew up Catholic. I don't I'm not practicing Catholic, but so I'm not trying to push any religion here, but this was all being these families were being supported by the Catholic Church again, who's huge human rights advocate in Latin America. They couldn't leave the land that um, the farmer's land because whatever with Guatemalan law, then they basically were walking away from the case, but they had this all this fertile land around them and they had mango trees and there were rotting mangoes around them because if they got caught at all growing anything or eating anything, that was considered uh, trespassing of private property and that they would lose the case in court as well. And then two miles away, there was another house where the owner of the farm was had his horses and his animals and there was running water and electricity for them. And these were homes very um, modest, no electricity, no running water. So it was just such a stark contrast. And we listened to them and heard what they were fighting for and what they wanted. And then the next day we went to a fair trade farm where even as soon as you got there, the workers just had rosier cheeks. Like they just looked healthier. And mm -hmm. so again, it's just seeing these contrasts. And when we got back, this, what Angelina encouraged us to do is let's do something about it. What can you do about it as students? And so we, um, we, I was, University of Washington is a campus of 40,000 students. And we started a campaign to switch all of our coffee on campus to fair trade coffee. And we were told this is pretty much impossible because they had a long a nine year contract with Tolly's who had no fair trade coffee options. And mm -hmm. what we did is we worked with a local coffee shop or a local roaster who did fair trade coffee. And we served every single morning for several months fair trade coffee to students while they were walking to class and got and had the pictures of the farmers and got them to sign a petition. And I can't remember how many, but we had thousands and thousands of students sign. And Tolly's, we got an email from Tolly's. Um, Sorry, like emotional even thinking about this because it just shows the power of um, organization. But we got an email from Tolly's and they said because of the work we had done and the education we had done with them, that they were going to create their own fair trade blend to for both espresso and that they were going to change all the coffee on campus to fair trade. Katza, this... I'm at a loss of words here for you sharing this experience with us, because I think this is not a usual experience of a 19-year-old student in America, unfortunately. The things that you've learned and, and the experiences that you got exposed to and the people that you met, that's freaking incredible. Now I see even more clearly why today you are where you are and why El Camino is the way it is, because it's just... That, that's incredible. And like you said, you were 19 at the time and you were seeing that stark contrast between that, that rich owner of the field and the people who were supposed to be working with him and, and how, how drastically different their lives, lives were. That's just incredible. And I want to say also that meeting the right people in our lives at the right time is so incredibly important. It sounds like Angelina, she was uh, a monumental person in your mm -hmm. life. It sounds mm -hmm. like, and that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, I feel so fortunate. And I think, you know, she taught me so much critical thinking, 
taking action for what you believe in and that our choices as consumers have impact on people in very far away lands and so or distances and yeah like at 19 and 20 that was just what you know I feel so so fortunate in being able to learn all these lessons and learn that so many different ways that we can make change and we can make a difference and to have a huge corporation not only change they didn't change even our campus to all fair trade they ended up changing their whole company to fair trade coffee and totally I don't I think it's not around anymore unfortunately I think they got pushed out by the, the Starbucks but they were as big as Starbucks when I was growing up on the west coast that was my education, which was not in the classroom walls only. That just set the, the path for whatever was to come next. So I feel, I'm a, feel, feel very grateful. Absolutely. And so how did you then, after you graduated college, uh, did you go into work right away or like what happened next? Yeah, so I graduated college and ended up moving to the East Coast a few months afterwards, did a epic road trip with my now um, partner. And we moved to DC, Washington, DC. And it was either DC or New York. We ended up, our car ended up breaking down in Baghdad, Kentucky. And what? We, yeah. <laughs> Can't make that and, up. <laughs> Yeah, cannot make that up. There's a whole story around that too with exotic animals. It was like pre-Tiger King. Like we had heard all these crazy stories about the area. But um, long story short, we had to get rid of our car, junk it, and we got $1,200. And that was enough for us to, because we couldn't fix it, for us to rent a car to get us to Washington, D.C. So we ended up in D.C. instead of New York City because that, that was closest. And we ended up in D.C. And the first job... Um, I was going there because that's international development that if like you are, you know how people go to New York for financing, if like you're going to make it anywhere for development, if you can make it in DC, you can make it anywhere. So that was kind of the goal. And, um, but somehow some of my last kind of projects and work I had done in college were actually around unions and garment workers in, in Latin America. And so there ended up working for a union in Washington, DC for the hotel and restaurant workers union, Unite Here 25, and got put into a campaign where um, to organize a new hotel where we could actually openly organize, which is very rare because this hotel had got government funding from Maryland, from the, gov- uh, from the state government of Maryland. And was we were organizing thousands of workers and I was put in charge because I spoke fluent Spanish, the Latin housekeepers and kitchen staff. And it, again, was a pivotal experience. It was the hardest thing I had ever experienced in my life. There was a lot. We were working 14 to 16 hour days, seven days a week for months on end. It was contradictory in the fact of like we were fighting for overtime and all of this for for the restaurant and hotel workers. And we were expected to work these crazy hours. And there's a lot of emotion in this work because um, you're dealing with a lot of fear with Mm -hmm. workers organizing and and being fearful of their jobs and fearful of every, of of being able to provide for their family. But 
it was the most amazing introduction into Washington, D.C. because I could very have easily been in my own little bubble and been in this D.C. bubble. Um, but it, it forced me because you're going to workers' homes, you're meeting with their families, you're building relationships with them to go to the other side of the Anacostia River that I probably would have never gone to parts of Prince George's County, parts of Virginia. Again, hearing people's story and part of being a union worker is figuring out what motivates people to fight for what they believe in. And we were like trained in that. And so um, learning people's stories and that that led to that. That was an experience that really impacted, gave me the skills to deeply listen and to be very curious of people who have very different lived experiences than I do. After a year, it was mentally, it was too much. That job just, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I saw a post in the actual physical newspaper, and I'm probably um, <laughs> dating myself for an admin assistant position in, for an organization that does, does rural electricity. Your story is so fascinating. I'm just like all into it, listening very carefully. I heard uh, you speak about that organization of rural electricity before. And to me, just it's so fascinating what what they do and what you did while there. So that's, um, let, let's hear it. <laughs> so yeah, it's still so when I look back on it, I'm like, wow, this is that was a crazy experience. But we, National Rural Electric Co- Cooperative Association, NRECA, represents the, it was formed after, under the FDR administration, and it was um, formed to bring electricity to the rural areas of the United States of America. There is now over a thousand cooperatives that are part of that. I had no idea that was even a thing or, again, coming from the city and Pacific Northwest, didn't even think about right. electrical access to rural areas and how hard it is. It's like but a different a world almost, right? It's a different world. It's a different United States of America that me as a privileged urbanite just never even realized. Access to electric- fast electricity, access to fast internet, high-speed internet. So their international foundation had a position as an admin assistant. This is one career piece of advice I give for everyone. It's like, even if it said administrative assistant, I was looking for, you know, like... Tr- uh, trying to do something a little bit what I thought was more advanced like just go for it and take for it because since it, since it was such, such a small organization they, I just had a ton of responsibility and I did mm-hmm. way more than I probably would have done at a lar- larger organization within it, it probably prepared you for the entrepreneurial path as well exactly. because... wear multiple hats <laughs> think on your feet be super scrappy think outside of the box but the foundation gets donations from all the rural electric co-ops in the U.S. to bring electricity to rural areas in countries like Sudan, Afghanistan, Bolivia, Dominican Republic, places, Guatemala, places that don't have electricity still to this day, Haiti. And yeah, I got to travel so mostly in Latin America, but got to visit these communities, work on projects. And what we did is we worked with the linemen and engineers of the rural electric co-ops in the United States to be volunteers, to go and train linemen in Guatemala, Bolivia on best practices and safety and help them set up lines in these communities, electrical lines. And I was helping these linemen from rural Alabama, 
Georgia, get, most of the time getting their passport for the first time. Mm. And it was, again, such fulfilling work because this was their exposure to, this was their first international trip and we weren't sending them to, you know, all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, but <laughs> in Cancun, but to these really hard areas throughout the world. And they came back with their minds changed and like it's the most important part of travel is like they had a personal connection so anytime they heard about that country or anytime they heard about um, a similar destination they had a base to the destination they had a relationship to the destination and it made them think differently and it didn't it made them um, as you know some of them told me like it just made them not be so quick to judge these places um so that was such an incredible experience. And for so many reasons, it helped me get to know parts of the United States of America I never would have gotten to know. And people from those parts of the United States, again, to help me not make quick judgment on those, on those communities. And yeah, and so that, that was there. And then just did a few other things in international development after that job working in climate change, clean energy, and then started my own consulting business that really set me up for the entrepreneurial life at 27, back in 2012. And that led into El Camino. And was there like a moment that you can go back to that said, okay, I'm going to start this thing. This is what I'm going to do. This is how my path looks like now for the foreseeable future. Yes, there's definitely a specific moment. So I had no intention of starting a travel company that was never, ever, ever on my radar. And Although now going back and looking at everything that you've told us so far, it's like you almost had no other option than to start one because every single step that you took has led you to that moment, right? It's so interesting yeah, how it works. Yeah, it's nothing's serendipitous and everything kind of builds off of each other. Um, at the time, you might not know it or you might not realize it, but um, now, yeah, you know, as you're saying, looking back, it's like, oh, of course, like this is where I ended up. Um, yes. So, but take us to that moment. Yeah. So I, as I mentioned, I started consulting business and was working with all different types of organizations, everywhere from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to Mercy Corps, American Planning Association, all, and ended up like over a few years having my niche as a consultant be around social entrepreneurs and enterprises. So working with entrepreneurs in, in countries where it is really hard to be an entrepreneur. And so I had a lot of appreciation. There's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy. It's pretty difficult. It's pretty easy to start a business in the United States. Like just even open up legally a business in some of these countries was a whole mess. But Loving that job, getting to have, so, again, some amazing experiences and meeting just individuals who really opened up my eyes in, in so many ways, but was in Guatemala for a job for three weeks and was just two things happened on that trip that led to the idea of El Camino. And, and the first was, this was in 2014, May of 2014, and going to these Stunning on the weekends, going to you know Lake Atitlan, which is the deepest lake in Central oh, America. Oh, it's such a gorgeous area. Yeah, it's yeah. a gorgeous area. It's Surrounded beautiful. by three volcanoes, and you get around by speedboats. That's like your taxi, and 
getting in the speedboat. And the first thing I did was grab the phone from my pocket, whatever iPhone five at that time or whatever it was, and started taking pictures and looked around and noticed that half the boats, tourists, half the boats, locals, and all the tourists, we all had some sort of screen up. And at that time, iPads were pretty big still of, oh, I'm going to capture my trip through an iPad and just being like, whoa, just taking a moment and just not judging anyone, but just being like, wow, I just had this gut feeling that the experience of travel is about to change because people, because of these powerful tools in our pocket and people are going to just be much more focused on capturing the moment rather than being in the moment. And that just that w- that was a prophecy, Kata. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> Instagram was not huge, but I and this is what I do. I always gut check my reaction and what I do to think more broader about what's happening in society because I I don't think like I think my natural inclinations and reactions aren't anything special. So it's like oh, this gives me a gut check on what maybe others are thinking too. And I remember I was like, okay, what's happening now? Oh, I'm gonna go back to my hotel and what I feel antsy to connect to Wi-Fi to share with people what I just saw on this boat. And so it's just putting the dots together and being like, this is going to become a thing. Like this is going to become a part of travel. And how is that going to change travel? And so that was the first experience. And then on my last day there, I was taking a taxi from Guatemala City to Antigua. And I was talking to the taxi driver about everything going on in the region, especially around the drug industry and drug violence, which really hits close to home with Colombia and um, you know, out of nowhere, he's, he goes, thank God for tourism. And I was like, why do you say that? Again, never thinking about travel or anything like that. And he goes, it provides me a high income. It provides me a reliable income. The only other, other industry that can compete with what I'm making in tourism is the drug industry. So thank God mm-hmm. for tourism. That's what's keeping me out of the drug industry. And I was just blown away and just really had never thought it about that in such simple in a way, simple terms, but really complex terms as well, how interconnected all types of economies are. And so on the plane right back, I was like, how can we get people off the phone? Well, what if we had a photographer on the trip? Well, how do we do that group travel? What I wouldn't even do group travel. So what does that look like? And, and then what's missing in travel? I'm an elder millennial, I'm 35. So I was like, there's no travel company that really gets how I like to travel, like that's providing me the experiences I want to have when I go abroad. And what are those experiences? Well, I want to get to know communities. I want to get to know that I want to dive deep. I want, you know, no one was talking about culturally immersive. The big buzzword then was curated. I'm kind of uh, crazy in in the sense of, or just really maybe uh, passionate, whatever you want to call it. But I was just like, I got to do something with all of this. And within a month launched El Camino travel. So um, that's fast. (laughs) That's really fast. Yeah. Just was like, put the, that's what I'm talking about. Like uh, I could start the LLC right away. And, and we're really lucky in the United States of America. I mean, that is super impossible in a lot of other countries. And I've come to deeply appreciate that. But um, yeah, one thing led to another. And Six years later, we've taken 900, over close to 1,000 travelers to seven different countries. And it's been quite a journey. That's incredible. And I want to hear a little bit more about El Camino and what you're doing right now. Specifically, of course, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a lot of travel businesses have been severely impacted. But when you were just starting out on El Camino, which is 
again, like it seems now that this is the inevitable path for you, but at the same time, you were veering off into a, a very different venture from what you did in the past, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm curious if there were any women that you saw in that space that were doing incredible things. And, and if you did see women like that, like how did that help you in a way or how did that impact you? Or, or were you completely like the, the only one, the first one, whatever you want to call it, as you were starting in entrepreneurship? I definitely had no idea what I was doing. and Like most of us when we yeah, start, right? Exactly. <laughs> no shame in that. No, no shame. shame. And was very naive to what it, what this, how hard that it would all be. But I don't think there was anyone in particular that I looked to. I mean, of course, and I, this might sound cliche, and I was talking about this the other day, but I mean, this person has impacted us everyone in the travel industry, but Anthony, Anthony Bourdain, yeah, yes. you know, was, it, we cannot underestimate how much he changed um, the landscape of travel. And that, of course, was one person I really admired. But I think in talking to another, a few years later to another female entrepreneur in the travel industry, who's much further along than I am. She started her business in the early 2000s and it was a mentorship session. Um, she said, the best thing, Kata, is that you didn't come from the travel industry and you didn't know much about the travel industry because if you did, you would be kind of confined to these boxes and not really under, like you would think this is how things have to be. And, but because of your own experiences, your own professional background, you came in with just a whole other idea of what travel could be and what it mm -hmm. should be. And she's like, that's probably why you've had so much success with El Camino travel, because you just really came in without these restrictions or without these kind of preconceived notions. So I think it wasn't anyone in particular within the travel industry. It was more about... Um, people outside of the travel industry, entrepreneurs outside of the travel industries, mentors that really shaped me along the way to help me think about travel outside of the box. El Camino, I think, is a really a living proof to that, to what you just said, because it's such a unique brand and you guys have such a incredible vision that stands out in the travel landscape for sure. So um, I think that makes total sense what you said. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned mentors several times. So tell me a little bit more about that, about mentors in your life and how, you know, what, what role have mentors played in your life? At least it's been my experience that we often underestimate the importance of having mentors guide our path. Um, and I think the more we can speak to that and the more we can really explain how mentorship is so important. I think that would be something that our audience would appreciate as well. Yeah. So I don't even know if my mentors would know they were my mentors. Like Angelina <laughs> probably has no idea that I, ref I've, you know, reference her often as a mentor. She probably knows by now, but I think here's a couple of things. I think growing up in being, again, going back to this community, like I grew up in community. I grew up where you leaned on each other, where you mm -hmm. not only your 
nuclear family, but your outside family and your friends are like your family. I think being from Colombia and being in a country that is so communal in so many ways and have and my parents really sticking to that when they got here really instilled in me this idea of, okay, I don't have to do things alone. Like I'm not expected to have this in, rugged individualism and I got to I can't depend on anyone and I just got to figure it out myself. And so I think I was, I've never been really shy in asking for help and asking again, questions and leaning on it, leaning on people. Um, And it's not definitely not a one way street because I expect people to do the same to me. And I expect like, I am super loyal, very avid, you know, my friends and family's biggest cheerleaders. And I get truly joy out of that. That makes me feel very fulfilled as uh, a human being. And so I think with mentors, I just found people that I really like when I when I was like, I have a lot to learn from this person. I this person already has impacted me just asking them questions and going to their office hours and reaching out to them and but in a very curious way and making sure that I was never just taking from them. Is there one thing I always try to do with anyone that ends up being a mentor is someone I lean on to learn from is what can I think about like how can I give back to them as well if I read an article that I reminds me of them if I know um, I'll ask them things like what is the biggest challenge you're facing and then I'll have that in mind to be able to whatever you know however it might come out in the future and just ping them or send them something or let them know I'm thinking about them not only to just get advice and, and that's it so I think that has been really important to me. I think also my mentors are not what you think of traditional mentors too, of just, okay, they're older, they're more experienced, they're, they've walked this path longer than I have. Um, I also see, I have several friends who I lean on as mentors in a way too, because they just have such a different lived experience than I do and such a different knowledge base than I do. And they've been really foundational to who I am in being curious and asking questions and and the same. It's a very reciprocal relationship. So um, just thinking of about mentors in very untraditional ways is important. Um, Some people call it your personal board. That's like building your, rather than a board of directors, it's building your personal board of mentors or friends or advisors. And that's kind of how I view it. And those people are different. There's people who are younger than me that I would consider part of my personal board that just have such a much younger than me, but have such a unique vision that I'm like, wow, I love what they do. And I want to learn more from them about how they see the world. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just want to reiterate something you said, because I think that's so, so important. You said that you never felt like you had to do this alone you mm-hmm. uh, you from the early age you understood that you could lean on people and you could ask for help and really that doing this alone is almost impossible right mm-hmm. most success stories that we hear about we imagine this self-made individual but really there is more likely than not there is a community of people behind them to support them along the way and i just wanted to reiterate that because 
maybe I'm biased, but for myself, I've always had this idea of making this alone and I have to do everything alone and prove everything alone. And so I'm, I'm trying to also retrain myself, but also I'm sure there are other people out there who have those, who have those thoughts as well. And so just capturing how important it is that you have uh, support from many, many different individuals from uh, diverse backgrounds around you, because no, you were not supposed to do this alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's incredibly important. Yeah, and I think just the fact, you know, the words that are used about entrepreneurialism in the United States of America and the quote-unquote American dream is self-made individual. The first word is self. Absolutely. And it's, I think one of the ideas that I'm really unlearning right now is the quote-unquote American dream. And um, it's so, so wrapped up in the self and the individualism. Mm -hmm. And the I, which is more apparent than ever with what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19. Not to say I was never, I mean, I grew up in the United States of America. Yes, that definitely had an imprint on me. And it really took leaving the country fully in February of 2019 to even realize the impact that had on me, the mental toll that had on me this isn't the only way to be successful, I think, is is this idea. And like the, yeah, we glorify in the United States, the self-made individual, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And that is not true. There's so much complexity to that. There's so much inequality wrapped up in that. And so I think what needs to happen and what I'm starting to see happen in the conversation is, okay, what's another what's another form of entrepreneurialism that isn't the the United States of America formula for entrepreneurialism? So. Because also what, what I just want to say on that is that what you said about how this idea of a self-made entrepreneur, well, who gets to do that? Who has the resources mm-hmm. to be able to put themselves by the bootstraps uh, in the setup, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a very racially, uh, genderally in um, unequal proposition, yeah. let's say, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do that. And so I just, I just love that you that you brought that up. Um, yeah. And I think that's actually a perfect segue to, into right now and this moment. You are living in Granada, Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you mentioned, you, know, you left there last year. And tell us, what are you working on uh, right now with El Camino? How is life in Nicaragua? How is it, uh, you know, you already touched on it a little bit, but how is it different from... Uh, leaving the rat race behind in uh, in the states. Love to hear that. So I'm I'm a Colombian citizenship. So we actually left to Colombia last February, and we were going to be living in Colombia mostly, and then had an opportunity here in Nicaragua, and that led us to Nicaragua in January. And we, I think. <laughs> It's actually really interesting because I feel like a lot of the things that people are realizing through the what one friend referenced as the, the great pause. Um, I don't know if that's being, I don't think she coined it. I think, I don't know where that came from, but I heard that. Yeah, I heard that too. The great pause is that a lot of the things people are realizing during this moment, I think I started to have those 
realizations a few months out of being outside of the United States, like how much of our worth is wrapped up in consumerism in the United States, how much we consume to fill voids, that how much we are taught to be uh, self-sufficient and not lean on anyone that happiness is so much wrapped up in success and success is so much wrapped up in, especially as an entrepreneur, raising a certain amount of money, making a certain amount of money, having the house with the white picket fence and the two kids and all of that. So um, living in Colombia for extended period of time and seeing such a stark difference of like, what is fulfillment? What is joy? Not to say there isn't consumerism there, but it's just at a whole different level it's not as accessible. People don't expect to get shipping within two days and feel like that's their right. Like that is my right to get a roll of toilet paper within two days. We're getting those uh, uh, Granada soundtracks right there. Yeah, Granada soundtracks, exactly. So I was like, I was, I'm not like I'm a great, you know, writer, but I started I'm writing about these observations in various places. And um, then realizing like how much we don't need to be happy and how, what really matters. So I think these are all the things that like a lot of us are also just really doubling down on and thinking about during this, this pandemic. So when it hit in Nicaragua, we decided, or when flights hit globally, we decided let's just stay here. I don't, I just had a feeling like things are going to get pretty bad in the United States and everyone thought we were crazy and and who is crazy now <laughs> i know they're like healthcare and blah blah and um you know it was it's been interesting to see how the united states has handled covid-19 and how not the government of nicaragua but the people of nicaragua have handled covid-19 so as soon as it became a thing like really really known as a thing at the end of march like people just started wearing masks they started wearing these plexiglass masks you go into a grocery store, they already started wiping down, you know, your by early April, your cart, they were taking your temperature. Almost m- most private businesses shut down on their own for like two mm-hmm. months. The people just kind of self-quarantined, kept distances. Like they, they took care of each other in Nicaragua. Like we, we didn't see our friends for several months. And, um, and it's, it's interesting because if you were to read the news and you were to Google Nicaragua COVID-19, it would paint such a dramatic different picture of what we experienced and what we saw and what we heard a lot of our friends from here. And not to say there wasn't a spike or huge cases and there was a few weeks where the hospitals were a little overload or overloaded, but then it like really... I think what happened is there was no commercial flights in and out of the country as well. Like they just shut down in early April. So we've kind of been in this somewhat of a bubble, but it really was about the people just Mm. taking it upon themselves and being responsible. I mean, everyone did it from, you know, the man who's delivering milk and picking up garbage to the restaurant owner. So you go in into any restaurant now, they're still doing disinfectant. They have disinfectant masks. They're taking their temperature. Like everyone's just putting that on themselves. Not everyone. Like I can't, those are, those are really broad words, but um, a good majority and banks, everything. So I seeing what's happening in the United States and talking to friends and family back there. It's 
it's the we versus the I. It's my yes. rights, my this, my that, you're infringing on blah, blah, blah. And there's just no, it's so divided and it's so divisive. And here is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And here's, I think, the second, quote unquote, by GDP standards, poorest countries in the Western hemisphere. And how the citizens responded is so, so starkly different. And I think being here, especially having my business in upheaval for the past few months, like it, I'm so grateful I'm here because it gave me such a faith in humanity. It didn't like it helped me not to go to a really dark place about the future of the world. So that's that's how it's been here with coronavirus and COVID-19 and We'll see what happens. They still, there's still no commercial flights. There's still no commercial flights in and out of the country. So mm. we'll see what how it develops in the next, you know, month or when they start letting, yeah, tourists and, in again. And you know, I think it's also definitely a blessing in disguise for you. Like you mentioned, that you were able to sort of ride ride out the storm and this upheaval in in that place that's so grounded in the community because I'm sure it has impacted your thinking on on the way that you found to pivot El Camino right now into the clubhouse. So I do want you to mention the clubhouse a little bit because I think that's such a such an exciting and such a beautiful thing that you guys are trying to do with El Camino right now that I'd love for you to just tell us briefly what that's all about. Yeah, so we, um, one of, you know, when all of this happened, I think one of the biggest things with El Camino that we're trying to do and that just become much more clearly defined through all of this is that at the end of the day, our small group trips, we focus on small group trips. It's about, it's, I don't even think we talked about what El Camino is doing or like how we approach it, but we haven't, I know. In short, we're focused on very culturally immersive experiences, mostly to Latin American countries and providing our travelers various perspectives into a destination and just getting them experiences they wouldn't get on their own and having them having a lot of fun, but also at the same time, just like help helping to create a very deep appreciation for um, cultures and different cultures and how they approach things and all that stuff. So um, we, at the end of the day, when you, you know, when we thought about it, it's okay, actually, what we're doing is building community, not community between travelers, community between people they're meeting, locals they're meeting on their trips and the travelers. And we are community builders. And I think that comes really from my community organizing experiences as a union organizer to like everything that happened in college, you know, all the stuff we just talked about. And just having people feel connected is so important to me and feeling like they're part of something and feeling like, they're doing something that they're part of something bigger than themselves that they couldn't be part of alone. And we were trying to figure out like, Oh my goodness, we have to postpone all these trips likely who knows till when, what are we going to do right now? And someone pointed out that the strongest thing we had is our community because we had built such a strong brand and we had built, we had created this, purpose that was much more than just, okay, we're going to go to these places to get beautiful Instagram photos, that we had such a strong support system. And so we started to think, well, okay, what do, what are people missing right now? They still want to travel. And I mean, they're, they're, I would say like the El Camino traveler is someone who really approaches travel from like a 
personal growth perspective, you know, they see it as a way to push themselves, get outside of their comfort zone as a way to grow. And we thought like, how can we build this in a digital space knowing the constraints? That is what we started to do. And we started, what, what would we want in travel? What is missing with online travel communities? What is, what's, what is the, the void there? And so, um, they're, you know, online travel communities are much more focused on quantity of members rather than quality of members. So we saw an opportunity there of just really getting, being so clear about, no one has to apply to be part of the clubhouse, which is this online, is our online travel community that we've created. But we wanted to kind of with our trips, we say our trips are not for everyone. When you sign up, we actually have people check off a whole list of traveler values before they can even pay their deposit. And so we wanted something similar for this online travel community where it was like, we want to be so clear about what we stand for that it's going to attract the right type of people with an open mind who are who want to be part of a community who are, who love community. I was actually talking to one of the members yesterday day, um, and they're like, yeah, you know, like it's like a commune. Like I know I have something to give with my wine expertise and blah, blah, blah. And I know I'm going to learn so much. Like it's going to be reciprocal. Like I want to be part of something like that. So that's what we set out to build. And this is where like my community organizing skills came in. It's like building an online, robust online travel community where people feel engaged. I mean, it is really hard to do. And we just decided that, or we went with that. I was like, okay, I need to go back to my community organizing days. And what did that look like? And how did we build community? How did we identify leaders within the union, you know, of the workers and the union organization to help lead the charge and um, we it's, so that's what's kind of we've been doing and we launched it about a month ago and we have close to 250 members from all around the world from all different backgrounds and there's just all these amazing conversations being had recommendations for people who are doing day trips and road trips and we're also really talking about the ethics of travel right now and what that looks like and digging deep into that and what does it mean to be socially a socially responsible traveler because it has a whole other layer of complexity with COVID-19. And we are bringing in speakers, what we call cultural luminaries from all different walks of life who are just doing such cool things in their industry to again, provide our travelers or our clubhouse members a new way of thinking with things that might seem common, a new way to look at New Orleans, to Burning Man, to to hidden gems of chocolates from Colombia or wines from Bolivia. So just we want to like, it's the kind of like providing surprise um, for our travelers. But we also see this as a space to really put our values into practice when we were starting to develop and think about the clubhouse it was in the middle it was george floyd the brutal death of george floyd happened and then all the uprisings and so we we said we can have we have the opportunity to build something that's actively anti-racist from the beginning in its foundation what does that mean in travel i know we're having a lot of discussions of that as a society as a whole but what does that actually look like in travel and we came up with a set of values about this being an actively anti-racist space that we everyone we share with everyone before they sign up and as soon as they sign up in their welcome letter. And 
there is really, you know, the industry as a whole, yes, is talking about how there's such a lack of diversity with in the professional realm and in with leadership of kind of the companies, travel companies of the industry. But if you go and look like, okay, what does it mean as a traveler when I'm on the road to be actively anti-racist or when I come home, what is that? Like there's no resources out there. We, we're bringing in a anti-racist ally educator to lead discussions that are very focused on travel around race, anti-racism and travel. And so one of the first session is actually going to be talking about a lot about the words we use when we describe our experiences abroad. So words like strange, weird, civilized, first world, third world, underdeveloped, developed, all these words that are part of travel writing or travel vocabulary that you see everything from the copy on IG posts to New York Times articles and just being like, what does that actually do when we say that food from another culture that's not like ours is strange or weird? It immediately others someone and upholds one culture, usually United States or white culture as higher than or normal compared to cultures from other countries. So what's the unintentional, unconscious words and vocabulary using that really does create these, um, that's harmful without us even knowing it, including myself. Like I've done this before myself. So um, that's kind of where we're, I'm excited because like we can, it, we can take the values of El Camino and what we stand for and we can grow together. I'm, we're not here to be the guru and all, all know be all. We're here to learn alongside our clubhouse members. We're here to bring in the people and create the space. You just need, you need someone who's going to like, lead it and be consistent you need someone to just provide the structure and consistency and facilitate basically be a facilitator and that's what we are and we're not the knowledge bearers necessarily and we're bringing those people in and to help us have these deeper conversations and help us think harder because this is the time for us to think about the type of travelers we want to be in the world once it's once we're able to travel again Wow, the clubhouse sounds just incredible. And I encourage everyone who's listening to check it out. We're going to link to it uh, in this episode as well. And so Kata, man, this is just incredible. Your story, what I hear from you is this one consistent thread of really being able to put yourself in other people's shoes and really empathize with others and really give your all to build communities in everything that you're doing, which is just so inspiring. And so I just want to ask you one last question uh, before we wrap up here, which is, and I always close with this question, but how would you start thinking about what it means to be a woman who is uh, stepping into her brilliance right now in this moment uh, that we live in? And I know it's a big question, but how would you just start thinking about it? right now i would say going back to like don't try to don't try to step into your brilliance alone you know don't i love that i love that don't try to do it alone start putting together your personal board of advisors and individuals and friends what can you learn from them 
How can you create the space to learn from each other? And I think those, that's what I would, I would say if we're learn if we know, if we're, <laughs> it's Friday in Granada and like, it's already happy hour started like at 9am. So yeah, I just think for learning, if anything, the big lesson learned of 2020 is we can't do this alone. We can't, we, we are so connected to each other. Our, the health and wellness of our communities are dependent on the, of each other and how seriously we take that and the, the choices we make and the behaviors we adopt in moments of crisis. And so, um, yeah, I would say step into your brilliance in community. Hey, thanks again for spending your valuable time with me today. I hope you found this episode helpful to you. And if so, please consider subscribing to our show so you never miss an episode. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for checking out Genius Women. And don't forget, you can find all the resources, links, and show notes over at GeniusWomen.com. That's women with an X. So if there was something you wanted to check out, you can always, always find it over at GeniusWomen.com. That's women spelled as W-O-M-X-N. Thank you so much again and stay tuned for a conversation next week with my dear friend and a transformation coach from Mumbai, India, Viba Chakani.